Hello, and welcome to Adventurous Polyamory, the podcast where we rip the shrink wrap off of non-monogamy and get into the messy reality of our lifestyle. I'm Rachel Barth, your hostess with the mostest, and I'm here to open up a big old can of truth and honesty about the joys and pitfalls of polyamory. Sex at Dawn is one of the books that most aspiring polyamorists eventually get around to reading. It's a fun survey of anthropological deep cuts, digging into animal and human societies that don't operate as recognizable patriarchies. So the first half of the book is about bonobos and the effects of resource competition on chimpanzees. Both types of primates are non-monogamous, but chimpanzees are notoriously violent and have a lot of scary behaviors while bonobos basically greet each other and cement all social bonds with sex. And as long as you're a nice person, everyone will be happy to share food with you. Resource competition makes primates aggressive, and chimpanzees have to compete with gorillas in their natural habitat, while bonobos are isolated from all that on the other side of the Great African Rift. This is kind of a digression, but I wonder if that's why people often find a gratitude practice so transformative. A proper gratitude practice will make you see that you have no resource scarcity issues. Maybe this reduces all the stressful internal pressures associated with resource competition. We essentially become more like bonobos when we practice gratitude, or more accurately, mental resource abundance. Hmm. Uh, yeah, in my magical fantasy life now, I'm designing a polyamory onboarding retreat. And at this imaginary retreat, all the participants will do a gratitude practice for the whole week. As long as it's my fantasy, I think this retreat should be at the beach. Anyway, the second half of Sex at Dawn is about non-patriarchal cultures, which are usually very old, tiny, isolated, and rare. The authors remark that most anthropologists will say that there are no matriarchal or gynocentric cultures. But in fact, they say, this is not true. Rather, it would be more accurate to say that a matriarchal society is more difficult to recognize because it's not an equally oppressive mirror of patriarchy. Instead, matriarchal societies tend to be fun places where women get to have lots of sex, and men do too, and nobody has to be anyone else's property. Some matriarchies have unusual family structures too. I particularly liked the Mosuo people who live in the Himalayas. Everyone remains in their mother's home for life. However, women get their own bedroom. They invite any man they choose to visit them there. And that's it. No marriage other than that. Children remain within the mother's family. The male lover goes home to his own mother's house. Male children learn how to be men from their uncles rather than their father. This seems like an unbeatable combination of personal, sexual freedom, and comforting safety. Plus, it's really low pressure, especially for men. No child support, no obligation. Why aren't we all living this way? Well... There's definitely a loss of power for men there. Supposedly, this was deliberate. The small class of nobility in those parts felt a bit threatened and caused a matriarchal system to be set in place as a way of preventing unrest. Good thinking, you ancient tyrants! 
But yes, the part where men in that system were stripped of some power was intentional. So from that angle, it's easier to understand why we don't all live that way. Nobody wants to give up power they used to hold, do they? It's a frightening prospect and one we all avoid. That's why rich, beautiful women spend so much money on plastic surgery, because beauty is a form of power, and they don't want to give it up as they age. It's very upsetting to lose power that we once had. I believe that's what makes the transition to polyamory so bumpy for many of us. Everyone involved is gaining some freedom, but losing some power, and that is incredibly rough. If you persevere, you eventually come out the other side with more freedom and more power, but it's not overnight at all. And the authors of Sex at Dawn would surely say that modern polyamory can look like a matriarchy from some angles. Everyone has a lot more freedom sexually, and there's a lot less ownership in general. Or maybe I should say, ownership is not a baked-in part of the system. Some folks like a bit of ownership in their relationships, and if that's your thing, I validate you. The old-school king with many queens model does kind of smell patriarchal, I guess. But I think that's more a matter of perspective. I wrote a little essay about this over on my blog. Is the lion the king of the pride? Or is he more like a pet? Does that king possess those queens? Or are they just companionably sharing him and saving themselves the trouble of hunting down any other worthy men? Like, hey, this one knows where the clitoris is. Let's just keep him and be done with it. You ask any woman today and she'll probably tell you that dating is a lot of aggravation. So why not go with a guy who's clearly sister-tested, woman-approved? In monogamy, this will look like mate poaching. But in polyamory, it just looks like sharing. I wouldn't hesitate to share a man with the Amazon. I mean, we're already sharing John, I guess. She's proven to be a reliable and trustworthy family member. And if she liked a guy, I would be inclined to like him too. Sadly, though, Kathy and I have completely unrelated taste in men. I can't share with her. We both wish we could, though. It will be so perfect for her, since she absolutely hates the game of dating, where, as I love it, I mean, so efficient for everyone. I could just introduce her to Esteban and all would be well. But no, we just don't find the same things attractive. For real, though, I'm not kidding about something being sister-tested, woman-approved. I think it's one of the best things about polyamory. Women take a risk when they engage with a new man. As the comedian Louis C.K. put it, how do women still go out with men when you consider the fact that there is no greater threat to women than men? We're the number one threat to women. I mean, he would know, I guess. Nobody's perfect. But I love how he puts it. If you're a guy, try to imagine that you can only date a half bear, half lion. Like, ooh, I hope this one's nice. I hope he doesn't do what he's going to do. I've been lucky in my life and escaped that type of harm so far. But plenty of women, including my own partner Kathy, know exactly how scary and dangerous a man really can be. So, 
Being able to see a man in action before you put down a deposit, so to speak, is a tremendous advantage. You can see how his partners look. Happy, gloomy, lethargic. What kind of atmosphere is this fellow giving off? Is he generous? Is he fun? Is he extroverted or introverted? Does he know how to treat women? Is he really just all about himself? Meeting a man within the setting of our community gives a woman a lot of information and even the ability to basically check his references. What kind of drama could you have avoided if you'd been able to check a partner's record? This is equally or maybe even more so true in the realms of kink or swing. In those venues, you are literally looking for someone to be very intimate with, so it's excellent to be able to see what kind of skill set they're bringing to the table. Or the bench, I'm just saying. You don't want to wind up with one of those decorative specimens who think that having a big gun means they actually know how to aim. You're really better off with a derringer that hits the target every time, don't you think? Opinions vary on this topic, but that's my personal feeling about it. Life is too short for me now to spend my precious time on a person who doesn't know how to maximize awesomeness in the bedroom. I mean, I might kick the bucket any minute now. I don't want to miss any good stuff in that department. So this ability to get a lot of useful data about a man is really good for women. So I tend to feel that even in the retro-style king model, polyamory is essentially woman-centric. Or maybe it's better to say freedom-centric. After all, the women in that relationship are not losing agency. They're choosing freely. And if not satisfied, they are free to choose again. So this is why I tend to think that the authors of Sex at Dawn would recognize modern polyamory as a matriarchal system. It gives a lot of benefit to women, but without penalizing men or reducing their agency. Yes, it does reduce men's overall power level in that it reduces their traditional ability to possess a woman completely and keep her in a state of dependency. But since we're already about 80% agreed as a society that these traditions need to be closely interrogated, this is not draconian. I mean, basically, it's happening anyway, guys, so why not at least get the rewards of this new system, since you're slowly losing that old-fashioned power anyway? The old shoes pinch our feet now, so maybe just get some new shoes. Women benefit from being able to see men in action before they approach. But women also benefit from being seen in action themselves, in the exact same way, but in reverse. After all, men are much less likely to be murdered by women, but they can still be hurt in lots of ways, and they are rightfully anxious about it. So we see that both men and women benefit from being able to see their potential partners in action. It's interesting, though, because the nature of the competition is altered for men. They can get more than one woman if they really work at it. But also, they don't really need to get rid of their competition. They can just date the same lady. There's still that element of trying to win the prize, but the pressure is less overall because your victory doesn't mean that no one else can win that prize. And since we have more openly bisexual women and men, the whole thing is a bit different anyway since you might have more targets that way. So, it's less like boxing or golf, and more like soccer. It's a team thing. 
The other players will not help you in golf. But in soccer, you could actually work together. Theoretically, you can. Some folks are just not team players. That'll show up pretty quickly in this lifestyle. But in theory, it's good for men to have other men close to them. Older men have a steadying effect on younger men. Younger men have an enlivening effect on older men. And as we talked about in previous episodes, everyone gets a fine boost of testosterone from the situation. The only real loss is the secretive thrill of mate poaching, I guess. It's fair to say that some folks really do enjoy that. I don't know. It's not my thing. The most matriarchal or woman-centric thing in polyamory, in my eyes, is the way that women's needs and desires are viewed. A monogamous woman in search of a partner is assumed to be seeking a big tentpole partner, a nesting partner, a very special someone, maybe even a spouse. It is assumed that they are there for a serious commitment. And many monogamous women are operating in an environment where their physical desires are pushed to the back burner. She only gets to pick one guy, so she's got to make sure he can cover as many functions as possible. A woman who's in touch with her own desires and educated about how to achieve them is not common, especially a younger woman. Usually by the time a woman is my age, she's got a much better picture, but there's just not much encouragement. Nobody sees five women doing shots and says, girls will be girls, they gotta get those yayas out. You never get to see movies about a female gangster with a husband and a boyfriend on the side. There's not even a word for a mistress who's a man. Manstress? Oh, dear, that might be a little too on the nose. Man stress. Okay, there's actually one word, an Italian word originally, cicisbeo. That means the lover of a married woman. But I bet you probably never even heard that word before. That's how little we really expect a woman to have a regular side piece. A woman is supposed to get a man and settle down, and after that, she is to find her happiness and fulfillment in that. Maybe she even has no life outside of that at all. By the way, all of that is really nonsense. For a deep dive into that whole thing and just how nonsensical it really is, I recommend a book called Untrue by a woman named Wednesday Martin. Also, side note, I love the fact that she's named Wednesday. Anyway, in polyamory, there's no avoiding the concept that women have both needs and desires. When you choose a multi-adult situation, you can no longer assume or hope that one partner will do everything that you need or want. I mean, your mileage may vary there, but by its nature, the system has redundancies and alternatives built into it. Rather than being the keeper of her family's social life, the woman becomes the keeper of only her own social life, since her partners must arrange their own social lives. So the woman gains tremendous freedom there, relieved of this responsibility. The other partners, especially a spouse, cannot depend on the woman to take care of this part of life for them. They have to figure out how to do it for themselves. But they also gain freedom, since there's a whole lot less of, I have to check if my wife will let me go out. But in polyamory, the default setting 
is that each person has agency and control over their own time, with a certain amount of variation for setups with more hierarchy. The woman, now significantly more free to do whatever the heck she wants, actually gets to figure out what she wants. This is a big upgrade. But at the same time, the other partners are more free as well, simply because of her freedom. See what I mean about matriarchy? When women's needs and women's power are elevated, everybody wins. When women get more freedom, everybody gets more freedom. When women get to have more sex, everybody gets to have more sex. See? As I think about it, I can see here that it won't necessarily manifest that way. I've come across polycules where the head person in charge really runs everyone's schedule more or less exactly the way a wife will usually run it in a monogamous setting. Old habits are very hard to break. It's unsettling or even painful to feel a loss of control. And becoming polyamorous is like pushing off at the top of the big slide at the pool. It's so fun, but you have to give up a lot of control. Man, there might be a few bumpy spots. But okay, let's leave that aside for a bit. If everyone can face the loss of control, there's a lot of freedom on the other side of that. Women in particular can gain a lot, a lot of agency. So many of us are raised without any connection to or understanding of our own wants and needs. I want to say it's incredibly common for women but I'm really coming to see how widespread it is for men as well. The way we are brought up, the sea of media we swim in, the crushing nature of modern society, it all works together to rob us of self-knowledge and self-will. We grow up in families where someone tells us what to eat, what to wear, what not to wear, how to speak, and when to be quiet even if we don't want to, and even who we are supposed to love and embrace and allow to kiss us. They tell us what to read and what to believe. And then we grow up and leave home. And guess what? We don't know what we want. And if we do figure out what we want, then we don't know how to get it, or even if we are allowed to have it. We don't know what we don't want either. And if we do figure out what we don't want, we don't understand how to prevent it. This total lack of self-understanding can be pervasive. And monogamous life seems to foster it rather than reduce it. When my partner Kathy bought her own home, she gave me my own room in there. She said, just tell me what bed you want and I'll get it for you. I put a couple of big massage mats on the floor and I slept on them. And it took me about five or six months to figure out what bed I wanted. At the ripe old age of 50, I had never had a chance to pick out a bed that was exactly what I wanted without reference to anyone else's tastes or preferences. I literally did not know what I wanted. Now, Kathy also had never had a chance to buy the bed that she still wanted. She knew exactly what she wanted, and that sucker was delivered the day she moved in. But see there, if she and I were married, then I still would not ever have picked a bed for myself, because I would be sleeping in the bed that she picked. It's only because we are partners, but not monogamous, that I have my own room, and hence, a chance to have my own bed. Polyamory allowed me to gain this level of self-knowledge. What kind of bed I like. 
what I like to be happening in that bed. Fast, slow, clockwise, what? Polyamory centers my life around my own needs. And that, to me, is by far its greatest benefit. I bet y'all thought I was never going to do a happy episode, right? Well, here you go. Thank you so much for listening. I want to hear from you. Please get in touch with me at unlimitedheartcoaching at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at unlimitedheartfreedom. Drop me a DM. I will answer. I want to hear what you think about the matriarchal nature of polyamory. Do you agree with me? As always, I am available for coaching sessions, and if you feel you could use some assistance, please get in touch with me for a free exploratory session. I appreciate you all so very much, and I'll see you back here in a couple of weeks.